Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Previously on IVFML. I'm pregnant. We're pregnant. God, this was so easy. We were worried for nothing. Exactly. And who's to say this wouldn't have happened on its own eventually? I mean, maybe we just freaked out for no reason. Okay, I know we told you that this wasn't going to be a sad podcast, and that's that's true, it's not. But this episode's about miscarriage, which is hard to joke about. Some people do. We'll talk to a comedy sketch team who did a show about miscarriage later. But for now, you're stuck with us sad sacks and the slow train wreck that was our first pregnancy. We started pretty early on in the pregnancy knowing that it was bad. And this is because of a hormone test called a beta level, which is supposed to double every 48 hours early in a pregnancy. Ours didn't double. It went something like this. 106, 150, 252. It should have been something more like 106, then at least 212, then at least 424. So our doctor started bracing us for the worst. I wasn't getting it, though, honestly, now that I look back. I I couldn't help but get excited. Yeah, it was, you know, I remember you peed on five different pregnancy sticks and you put them up all over the bathroom and there was this little shrine to the fetus. Well, I just felt really accomplished. We've been trying to do this thing for a year and a half and I felt like we've fucking done it. Yeah, I... It's it's hard looking back to remember how happy we were. And I think I was more upset than you were, but I'm not sure if that's true. Like, what, what do you remember? Did you think things were going to work out? Were you confident? Uh, it was a mad mood swing. I went back and forth really hard. Like some days I, I wasted hours dreaming about our baby, who our baby would be. I wanted to call her Cleopatra because I wanted her to sort of be that ancient queen in who my, killed herself with an asp. Okay, but she was also beautiful, accomplished, learned, and crafty. But on the other days, I would just listen to really sad Sufjan Stevens music and cry at my desk. And like my coworkers were noticing, and they talked to me about it, and they were taking long walks with me. Ugh, what about you? Um, I mean, I guess if there's anything I want to say to people who are listening who, you know, I hope you don't experience miscarriage, but we'll get into some numbers later and you'll see that you probably will. Um, Not probably. (laughs) It's one in four. Uh, That's a lot. One in four is a lot. One in five. (laughs) Fine. One in five. It's still a lot. But uh, someone you know has experienced this. But the, the thing I would say that's really surprising is that a miscarriage is not a car accident. It's not something, you know, I thought it was something where it's like, we're moving right along with the pregnancy and then boom, the miscarriage happens. We lose the pregnancy. We're tears. It's horrible. But it's not like that. Our miscarriage took two months. I think that's probably because since we were receiving fertility treatments, we knew right away, like the moment that I was pregnant from very early on. And we just started testing and testing to see how it was progressing. And we knew very immediately uh, two days after the first positive test that it wasn't going the way it was supposed to. Yeah. I mean, what's one of the things frustrating with the beta level thing. So they put 
they tell you these numbers, they tell you what it should do, but they also tell you, but it doesn't necessarily mean things are wrong. Yeah, your your fetus could be the one that defies the odds. Because that does happen. There are, you know, babies, there are people, human beings walking around right now. Perfectly healthy human beings. Yeah, whose hormone levels, you know, when they were a fetus, you know, did not trigger their mother's body properly and everything was fine. So you're sort of hoping that you're that little snowflake where everything is going to be fine for. Um, so part of the testing also included these vaginal ultrasounds. I had four in the span of an eight-week pregnancy, which is kind of a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like this is another part of, when I say that the miscarriage took two months, I'm not saying that it took two months to recover from. I'm saying that it was two months of testing, that we had this bad news right at the beginning that there might be something wrong. And then because they got the bad news, they start testing us over and over and over again. And there's nothing they can do with the test. I think they're literally just trying to catch the miscarriage as early as possible so that they can pop the balloon and let us start the fertility process over. At least I think that's what was happening. I, I think that that sounds right. I mean, like we're watching this embryo unfold in a non-standard way and it's just efficient to know when it's over so yeah. that we can start again. And I don't want to, again, we we had a lot of hope. You know, we we were at these ultrasounds and in every ultrasound, they're measuring Cleo's size and looking for signs of whether she was growing right. She and even got to the heartbeat. She got to the heartbeat, which was amazing. We saw her heart beating and that was incredible. I still feel forever changed by that the first time I've ever seen that and I felt like a new sense of purpose, like my heart is beating to keep this heart beating too. Yeah, and the doctor the doctor was relieved too. I mean, it wasn't just, we weren't crazy. It wasn't like we were these crazy hope monsters who were just <laughs> ignoring all the evidence. Like the doctor saw that heartbeat. I remember she said, heartbeat trumps all the other indicators. Mm -hmm. She wasn't saying that everything was going to be fine, but she started talking about future tests. She said that we didn't have to do an ultrasound the next week. We could wait two weeks this time. Mm -hmm. You know, we went on a trip. We went to Disneyland. We spent it with my niece and nephew. We started making plans, you know? So I sort of feel like that heartbeat, even though it made us so happy, was really, truly cruel. I'm so glad I saw it. Okay, so when we went back for the eight-week ultrasound after we'd had our two weeks of hope, I had my phone out. I was ready to videotape everything, which is something I didn't want to do because I didn't want to take the camera out until I knew everything was going to be okay. But Anna insisted that I have it out from the beginning. I think it was because I was confident. Yeah. I wanted to see her dancing. But as soon as the ultrasound wand entered me, I knew that there was something really, really wrong. Obviously, we're not trained in ultrasound readings, but it's obvious when the heart isn't flickering anymore and the embryo wasn't moving. It's just slumped. The thing I remember most is the silence that, you know, you sort of have this like tension when you're doing an ultrasound and there's like chatter with the ultrasound tech and the doctor wasn't in there uh, because we had sort of graduated to the stage where the doctor isn't with us at all the ultrasounds. You know, there was that level of confidence. And so you could just see like I just I remember just that feeling in my gut and the room being silent, you know, deleting the video off my phone, stuffing my phone in my pocket and just hearing the cold sort of emotionless voice of the ultrasound tech as she called for the doctor, you know, and I knew that somewhere this doctor was being rushed out of another room to our room. Mm -hmm. The ultrasound <sighs> tech did go silent. Yeah. So our doctor brought us into her office. We talked about next steps. Our worst nightmare happened. And then it's like right away you have to be on to the next steps, you know, like there's not really any time to do anything because now it's like a race to reset Anna's body. Well, she also wanted to test the products of conception, as she called it, so that we could see if there were any chromosomal abnormalities. 
So in order to do that, she wanted to do this surgical procedure called a dilation and curatage. Other people might know it as a DNC to collect um, whatever was there right away and send it off to a lab for testing. And I just just to be clear, the doctor wasn't cold about any of this. The doctor, I, she may have she, she got, definitely had tears in her yeah, eyes. Yeah, and you know this this part's a little blurry. And I remember that you, Anna, you were actually like the least emotional at this point. Like you had this stiff upper lip thing, and I kept trying to grab your hand and check on you. And you were sort of like all logistical questions: When are we scheduling the DNC? How much work will I miss? And then it wasn't till we finally got into the elevator at the clinic that you just burst into tears and buried your face in my shoulder. I just didn't want to be that kind of emotional burden for the clinic. It, they probably see this stuff all the time. And I don't know. I just didn't feel like bothering them. I, I do. I, I know what you mean. Because I remember thinking as you were just sobbing in my shoulder in that elevator. And there was a uh, it was an elevator full of people. And I'm not embarrassed by that. But I know that they know that that floor is the fertility clinic. And they know that a woman just came out of there sobbing. And it's there is something painful that everyone knows your pain so obviously and so immediately like that. Oof. Then we went for sushi. We didn't know a lot about miscarriages before we had two, and I think that's pretty normal. We fell into a lot of magical thinking about what miscarriages are and what causes them. These myths can be really hurtful, and they result in some pretty weird unspoken rules about pregnancy and pregnancy loss. I sat down with Dr. Kristen Bendixson, an OBGYN professor at the USC Keck School of Medicine, to learn more about what miscarriages really are and how we can change the way we think about them. I'm leaving. Why? Because this is the part that's not about me, and it's just about facts and stuff. Bye. Dr. Bendixson, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here today. Now, before we start, I want to bring up this 2015 survey on miscarriage myths. Dr. Zev Williams, who directs the Program for Early and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, found that lots of people think miscarriages are rare and that they're caused by stress or lifting heavy objects. So, Dr. Bendixson, what is the truth about why most pregnancy losses happen? So you are absolutely right that I think the majority of people in that study thought that the reason that you miscarry is because of stress or you lifted something where that, in fact, is pretty far from the truth. Um, we know that the majority of miscarriages are caused by chromosomal abnormalities, which are abnormalities in the amount of genetic material that's in the embryo. Right. Now, I know for me especially, um, as somebody who's had miscarriages, and I think for other women as well, people around us like to remind us that we're not grieving a real person. And to me, it's like, I didn't say I was grieving a live person, but uh, you're really rude. And that was a really weird way of reacting to my news. So yeah. why do you think we're so bad at like dealing with pregnancy loss? Just like offering a simple I'm so sorry is, is not that hard to do, but people get all weird. They do get weird. <laughs> they don't know how to handle it. Um, and I think in many ways for the people that are actually suffering from the loss, the loss can be so much harder to grapple with because it's not the loss of something, mm -hmm. all right? My son has a crayfish, and the crayfish just died last week. And so we had a little memorial in our backyard where we buried the crayfish. But it felt very natural to do that, all right, and to talk to him and say, we're so sorry. But what do you do when there isn't actually something tangible that someone is losing, mm -hmm. right, the loss of a loved one? Um, and I think that's hard for the patient that's dealing with it because 
it's not something that they've lost, but it's almost the dream of something, the wish of something, something. It's all that time that they spent imagining what their life was going to be like being a parent and having this child, and that's what they've lost. Um, so it's so much harder to go through because it sometimes isn't a tangible loss, and people just don't know how to deal with it. Right, right. So what do you think are some of the ways that people can react to a miscarriage that helps a grieving couple or a grieving woman that isn't, you know, like, remember, this isn't a real baby mm-hmm. or just sort of insensitive reactions like that? Yeah, I think the best thing that they can do is to just offer their support and their condolence and um, make sure that that friend or coworker knows that they're there for them. And if they need support in any way that you would be there to support them, I think that that's probably the most important thing that you can do. Now, a lot of times when a woman gets pregnant, she's encouraged to keep the development a secret until Mm -hmm. the end of the first trimester when she's in the supposed safe zone. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, it sort of seems like the reason we're told to do this is so that we can keep the miscarriages a secret, too, if that happens. What do you think about that tradition of keeping pregnancies a secret until the second trimester? I actually never tell my patients to keep it a secret. Um, I have patients that ask me all the time, when is it safe to tell people? And what I tell my patients is you should tell the people that you want to know about the pregnancy and treat it in the same way as if you lost the pregnancy, would you want to go to them for support? So I feel like if you have a close friend or a family member where if you lost the pregnancy or had a miscarriage and you would want to be able to talk to them about it, you should be able to tell them that you're having an early pregnancy. Um, But I think it is individual. Some people just don't want to share those things until they're a little bit further along and have a better sense that the pregnancy is going to be fine. But I think you're right. I don't think it's the right approach to tell people that they should keep it a secret. So Dr. Bendixson, what are some of the worst things that patients have told you that their friends or family have said in reaction to their miscarriages? I think the two biggest things are, one, oh, well, it's a good thing that you miscarried because it was going to be abnormal anyway, and it's a good thing. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I see your face on that one. I bet you've heard that. (laughs) It's all for the best. Yes, it's it's all for the best. It was the plan. Um, And then the other thing that I think patients don't typically appreciate is, oh, well, at least you know you can get pregnant. Um, And that's another hard one to swallow, especially for women who have had multiple miscarriages because, yeah, they can get pregnant, but if they can't have a baby... They don't have a baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like all that they can do is get pregnant. Exactly. What's the one thing you wish you could tell people about pregnancy loss? I think that the most important thing for women to understand about miscarriage is that most of the time it's not their fault. I think people, they reexamine every single thing that they did in the last month, what they ate if they exercise, if they ran up and down stairs, all right? But it's really, it's not what you did unless you're going out and smoking a pack of cigarettes every day and doing cocaine. It's really, it's not about that. It's it's unfortunately a part of reproductive life. Um, it's in the normal range that these things happen. It's not anything that 
people want to have happen, but it happens. And it's just, it's not your fault. Um, so don't think about it that way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How to Have a Good Miscarriage by Anna Almondrala. Part 1. The Cadillac Option. First, get your miscarriage diagnosed. In the first trimester at least, the most polite miscarriage of all is the missed miscarriage. This is when you don't notice anything's wrong and you go to your doctor for a routine ultrasound and find out that the fetus is dead. Probably has been for weeks. But it didn't want to be a bother to you, so it just waited patiently until you could find out on your own time. A perfect little gentleman slash lady. You don't know because it was too early to tell. Then send an email to the 15 or so people at work who you told really early about your pregnancy. Like, way too early, like the day you found out. Include a saucy gif of Elizabeth Taylor so they know that you're doing fine and you're totally going to bounce back from it. Now eat the fuck out of your feelings. You've been abstaining for sushi for a couple of months now, so go to the best Japanese restaurant in your neighborhood and get the biggest lunch combo size. You've earned it. In LA, that means sugarfish. And for some reason, I always want ice cream after sushi, so go ahead and grab a cone afterwards, too. Go back in time five years and marry the best man you know. That way, when you're waiting for ice cream after a miscarriage diagnosis, you can take your face in his hands and solemnly say, Beyonce didn't get blue ivy on the first try. Take your rage out on someone. Call your mom and ambush her with the news in a brash, falsely cavalier tone. Get into a screaming fight with her about the finality of the diagnosis, but then cave to her crying request to get a second opinion from a different doctor. Go to a matter-of-fact French OBGYN who confirms what you already knew and see your dead fetus for the last time on the ultrasound screen. Your uterus is good, she says flatly. You will be pregnant again. Schedule a DNC operation to remove the products of conception because you have a business trip to New York coming up in two weeks and you didn't want to wait around and see when you were going to start bleeding. Make arrangements, send the tissue to a lab, and get it tested for chromosomal abnormalities. On the day of the surgery, don't eat or drink anything for reasons you don't really understand. Roll your eyes as the nurse apologetically explains that the anesthesiologist can't be billed through insurance, so you need to pay $600 up front. Breathe deeply as they insert the propofol IV and give yourself over to the delicious twilight sleep. But because you're still awake when you arrive in the OR, transfer yourself over to the operating table even though it's really hard and you're almost unconsciousness. Wake up and find a white blanket filled with warm air on top of you. 
You feel safe and taken care of. So ask your husband if you can go to Squirrel for brunch after this is over. Fall back asleep until an urgent pain in your bladder wakes you. That bag of fluid they've dripped into you wants freedom. Go home and find a brownie in your kitchen courtesy of a friend. Send a cheeky text thanking him for your abortion brownie. Set up camp on the couch and go to sleep to episodes of X-Files. Oh shit, it's the one where Scully both finds out that she has a daughter and then loses her in the same episode. This is too much for you in your fragile state, but you're so inspired by Scully's strength and her dedication to the scientific method. Sit, watch, and cry through the whole thing. Part 2. The DIY Option When you have your second miscarriage eight months later, go into your ultrasound as a grim formality because you knew from all the beta draws that this thing ain't happening. Roll your eyes at your husband because he's glad that he didn't get attached to this one. Silently mouth, fuck you, because you didn't have that same option. Get a prescription for misoprostol, which you find out later actually goes into your vagina. Yay! Put the pills in your pussy and start cramping everywhere, including in your large intestines. As you poop, Watch your vagina for any blood clumps to catch in a plastic cup. You're still sending the tissue to a lab for analysis. Go to Sugarfish. Eat more sushi. Anna and I have lost two pregnancies, and they really devastated us. But that got us thinking. How do people who have four, five, or six miscarriages cope and then move on? Look, we're, we're not trying to put on the grief Olympics, but we did reach out to some people who have a lot more experience with pregnancy loss than we do. Here to talk about miscarriage and infertility in general are comedians John Murray and Sylvia Ozols, who are not a couple, but did write and perform in a show in New York called Infertile, a sketch comedy show. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks, Simon. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah. So we are talking today about really tough stuff, infertility and miscarriage. Uh, why did you monsters think it was so hilarious that you had to write a sketch comedy show? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that we we thought it was the the act of it itself was hilarious. We um, we wrote a sketch comedy show uh, because we wanted to um, turn what it was a trying some would say negative experience into a positive. We wanted to kind of get back some of the time that we struggled through with infertility. Uh, so we wrote a show to turn what we all this knowledge we had into kind of a positive. Um, yeah, John actually, uh, when we were talking about writing a show together, he had two pitches for me. I did. And one was uh, because we both had experienced infertility to talk about that. And the other was to base a show on his mother's funeral, which had just happened yes. a few months earlier, mm-hmm. um, which uh, it sounds like I'm laughing, but is just overwhelming to me because uh, John is one of the most upbeat, happy people you'll ever meet, but he is not scared to tackle dark subject matter. Yeah. The, um, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of tragedy in my life that uh, I'm able to mime for and see some humor in because uh, that's kind of it. What we think about with this whole infertility thing is that uh, it's not infertility itself. It's the process of infertility that is the ridiculousness of what you're put through as mm-hmm. a couple and stuff like that that we find kind of humorous. And that's yeah. I look forward to your next show about watching an orphan starve to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Totally. We'll see. Write what you know. Well, I have to live it, guys. That's the thing. Yeah. So, uh, My wife and I had six miscarriages. Oof. My wife and I were able to get pregnant naturally, um, but like we said, we kept running into miscarriages. So we had about six of those. 
then we went and saw some doctors, some fertility specialists. They were thinking maybe she had something like endometriosis. There was some exploratory surgery involved. And once that happened, she wasn't able to get pregnant naturally anymore. So then we went and did cycles of IUI and IVF. And on our third IVF, we decided that that was it. That was going to be our final one. And we were lucky enough to get pregnant. Oh, you had children in the end. I did. That's awesome. I did. Yeah, not to spoil it. But yeah, we ended up having twins uh, through IVF. So uh, yeah, but we had a long struggle. It took about five years overall for my wife and I to uh, finally end up having our children. So I don't know if this was your experience, but with our, our two miscarriages, I did feel like for whatever reason, the first one is the one that I still think about and the one that still messes me up. And the second one was upsetting, but it, for some reason, it didn't have the pull in my memory of the first miscarriage. I'm curious if with six, if you feel the same way, if you feel different, if each of those is is a separate experience to you. Um, it, the first two stand in my mind the most. The first, my wife and I still, like, uh, I still check in with my wife every once in a while to, you know, well, asking her what age would our first child be. I think it'd be probably like uh, seven or so. Yeah, we do that. Now. Yeah, so, you know, that's kind of where we touch base on that. The second one is very, is vivid in my mind because of uh, the reaction. For us, our first doctor was like, oh, this happens. It's a, it's a normal occurrence. Um, we didn't do any testing, which it was unfortunate and as we continue to have problems because testing off of that first miscarriage would have been beneficial to see where we kind of went from there. So it was kind of this nonchalant kind of thing. So when it happened again, the shock was just uh, was devastating for us. I can remember my wife having a big physical reaction, crying on her floor uh, when we found out the news of that. As we continued to go into higher numbers, which is so unfortunate to say, I think that the memories get less vivid. Um, the grief was always there, but it was like more about the process of like, we're going to have to go and do another DNC, which is more, mm-hmm. it started to become more of the nightmare than anything in a way, because that procedure is just horrible for her. It's a surgery and that kind of stuff. So the loss is always hard, but to then have to go and do the second act to it is, uh, was a challenge. Let's talk about how, you know, you managed to stay sane and stay calm and stay cool throughout all these losses. Um, I love that part in your show when you're with that happy couple who wants to announce their pregnancy and then you guys are like, uh, we have news too. And it's so hilarious because it's so real. You want to be like upfront about your struggles and be real about what's going on in your lives, but it makes people feel so uncomfortable and so awkward. A lot of that sketch actually came from Sylvia's experience. Actually, we kind of built that off as something that she had kind of said. So. Yeah, we worked on that scene. We had a couple different angles on it, and we couldn't quite get it to work. We, you know, we sort of wanted to, we didn't know what we wanted to poke fun at because it's just sort of an awkward scenario all around. And I found that uh, I, I wanted to sort of poke fun at myself because the way I handled it when talking to people about infertility was to make stupid jokes and pretend like it, it was nothing, you know, it wasn't affecting me. And the jokes ended up being so awkward and awful that it made people even more, uh, <laughs> feel even more awkward around me. Um, so the, the the target of that scene or the, the person that the, that we're ridiculing a little bit is, is, is that sort of happy-go-lucky, everything's great, har, 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 my uterus is dead kind of uh, attitude towards it. I remember after my miscarriages, I would tell people like, I feel resilient. I'm ready to try again. <laughs> right. well, you would also though, if uh, 
we were like we were working on the garden or something and there's one part wasn't looking good and you said yes it's bleak and barren like my womb yeah you would just say weird shit like that all the time <laughs> yeah how could you not signs yeah. of life everywhere yeah i did the same thing all the time <laughs> yeah you had you said you had what scrambled eggs inside you yeah like, <laughs> yeah i like looking back on the checklist of corny jokes that i made uh corny awful jokes and my um, my actually i'm on an improv team and all fellow comedians and uh and yeah they they very they were so nice about asking me about these things like the most recent procedure and then I would just say something awful like yep I'm dead inside and full of scrambled eggs <laughs> and they would just sort of <laughs> stare at me uh, very kindly yeah I think there's like there's I felt a lot of pressure too to like don't worry everything's fine even when it's like everything is not fine yeah, you, you feel fucked. the need to yes it's fucked yeah. and you feel the need to comfort the other person even though you're the one going through it so I know that John talked about how he wouldn't let his uh, circumstances get in the way of feeling happier for other couples when they had success with their fertility. But Sylvia, I wanted to know, did you feel the same way? I know for myself, I was always publicly like so supportive, but inside I would be like, you know, crying on the couch for days if I w received a baby shower invite or if, you know, a friend told me, haha, I forgot my birth control on vacation. I have a whoopsie baby. I'd be like, great. Yeah, yeah I think it's uh, inevitable not to feel a bit of resentment. Um, I, I, It's funny because I, um, I actually am pretty good at compartmentalizing. So all of my rage tended to go towards uh, people in the medical community, honestly, and myself. Um, I don't think it ever went towards my husband. We were very lucky in that we didn't know exactly who was to blame, so to speak, because uh, we didn't know, so we couldn't point the finger at each other. And I think I also did my best not to let my rage extend to people who who, who did have babies, because uh, mm -hmm. you're right. I um, Somehow that happens when you're going through infertility, suddenly is the time when you get the five different baby shower invitations. <laughs> And um, I just sort of, uh, yeah, I would just sort of not let myself, um, not let myself. Uh, you dove in. Way. You dove in. I dove in hardcore. Core. I was like the first, like I won so many baby shower prizes because <laughs> <laughs> I was the one like tasting every baby food exactly. and guessing everybody's, you know, circumference. You just go the opposite way. You dig in deeper I just instead went of. for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we did not do that. I, I felt like we. You know, there's a season to things in life. So it's yeah. like your late 20s, you're at a wedding every week. Mm -hmm. And then I felt like when we were dealing with our infertility, there was like a baby announcement every week. Yeah. And I'm sure it's just, you know, we were noticing it. But I remember I was with a friend, uh, you know, I'm a TV writer and we have weird schedules. And, you know, we were talking about trying to have kids. And he said, well, you know think we're going to try to have our baby in November because we'll be in the off season then. And then he just <laughs> did that. And it was... <laughs> You know, I was I was happy for him, but I also But he was, planned his pregnancy to the month. Yeah, he planned his pregnancy to the month. The baby was born exactly when he wanted it to be born. The moment they started trying, they had the baby. You know, and I had a, another very close friend who, you know, they were worried they're going to have infertility problems because they're much older than us. And, you know, we sort of were ready to be the the wise couple mm -hmm. who is going to guide them through infertility. And we sort of felt like, ah, here's where being a veteran of this horrible process is going to help us. And then uh, they started trying. And within like two weeks, they were pregnant. And <laughs> I felt ridiculous that I had been offering advice and, you know, embarrassed and frustrated and just sort of that feeling of like, I'm happy for you, but it's buried under a lot of horrible things. 
Wow, you've never said this in therapy, Simon. This is very healing. <laughs> I'm good. Well, hey, man. It's a safe space. It's yeah. a safe space. You talked about the ending you considered for the sketch show mm -hmm. about the childless couple who has wine and extra income. And I know that Anna and I tried to make ourselves excited about that idea mm -hmm. and we're completely incapable of it. Because wonder... we're fucking boring. <laughs> we're boring. We don't we don't have very many friends. We don't drink. Right. We don't do anything interesting. I don't even drink tea. I don't even drink caffeine. I can't I'm not gonna make it through. So that's very I'm healthy for you. That's, that's great. That's Stop giving you. yourself such a hard it's time, well. man. You're gonna live forever. It sounds very healthy. So I, you know, I wanted to ask, you know, did either of you sort of actually harbor that fantasy or try and make yourself okay with that fantasy at any point in the process? <laughs> I can remember I turned to my wife at one point. I was like, well, maybe maybe we'll do that. And she was just like, are you crazy? She was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I think just our marriages aren't as exciting as we Exactly. She was just like, are you kidding me? She's like, what? like she's like, well, like, we'll get started on adoption. Like, she's like, we're going to, we're having a family no matter what. So I was able to be like, oh, okay, cool. Like, we're always going to be in. We're always going for this. It just took this, like, incredulous moment of her just being like, what are you talking are you about? Yeah. Power couple, like you know, just you for the rest of my life. That, like, just kind of like, like, I mean, what do you think about it? Is like, what us, like, in some glass department, like, you know, I don't know why I'm making a, such a cliche of that couple, but like, yeah, we become something like out of like, you know, how the yeah, you're traveling through Europe, you yeah, know, you fly first class every time. You occasionally have, you know, threesomes where you find your third in East <laughs> Berlin. And I think that's that's the moment where my wife was like, "Look, like, like we're gonna have a family some way, somehow. We're gonna have one." And like that's where I was like, "Oh, like, it, it, like my wife is, uh, she's just my muse. She's just a fantastic woman, and um, she just really like opened my viewpoint on what things could be. Where she's like, it, it never. It, we we decided we want a family, so that's what's gonna happen, you know. Uh, so we don't have to suddenly, you know, just drink red wine all the time and like live in a cold, <laughs> sterile apartment. <laughs> But so clean. Yeah, Always so clean. So and clean. this is not, I just want to put this out there. If you are a power couple out there, uh, more power to you from, from what you went through and stuff like that. I totally appreciate that as well. Well, I want to thank you guys for being here with us and sharing your stories. And uh, everyone should check out Infertility, a sketch show. At, it's at UCB Chelsea right now. You know what? Let people know that they missed something important. <laughs> <laughs> what about your Twitter accounts? Twitter? Okay, sure. Follow us on Twitter to keep updated about the show. I'm uh, at the John Murray. And I'm at Sylvia Ozols. I won't spell it. Just find it on your own. <laughs> just kidding. There's a J in there, everybody. Be prepared. Yeah, just put a random J in. I would say uh, check out ucbtheater.com for our upcoming show dates. That would be great. It's always awesome to talk to other people who have um, gone through similar experiences because I find that even though people can be so compassionate and kind, nobody truly gets what it's like to just have a body that disobeys your will. No one understands us. <laughs> I think part of what I really liked hearing them is sort of John has this serenity almost after his losses and Sylvia's got the rage. Like she's bringing she, the power. She's still angry, but it works for her. You know, and I, I found I feel like if I had only talked to John, I would feel like what's wrong with me that I'm so filled with <laughs> anxiety and anger and frustration over this process. But then hearing Sylvia sort of be like, I'm still pissed off. I have my baby and I'm still pissed off about this process. I thought was comforting for yeah. me. Mm hmm. 
Resentment is real. Sometimes it doesn't go away. Sometimes resentment fuels us. <laughs> <laughs> fuels us to greatness or revenge. <laughs> I don't know who you take revenge against in this case. I think we could manufacture something against someone. Yeah. But now that we've talked about our two miscarriages, we can talk about what came next. Yes. We're going to actually get to the title of this podcast, IVF. Next time on IVFML. We've talked about periods. We've talked about semen. We've talked about sex. But now, we're going to talk about the most vulgar thing of all. Cash money. You've been listening to IVFML, a HuffPost podcast. IVFML is written and hosted by Anna Almendrala and Simon Gans, and produced and edited by Nick Offenberg. Artwork by Isabella Carapella. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating, or send an email to IVFML at HuffPost.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 